Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. So, which translation would you prefer? the translation of the relics of Theodosius of the Caves, the translation of the icon of our Lord, or the translation of the Mother of God, body and soul into heaven. We got them all this week in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. Little bit of a plan, where's there a translation? How we're oftentimes are asked that, especially when you're reading the Bible, someone might say, what translation do you use? This also comes into play when we talk about liturgy, new translations. Which translation of the liturgy do you prefer well, we have translations this week in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. Well, it's translations, really, of a human person, in the case of the Mother of God, but also translation of relics and translation of something that was made by God, something we actually say not made by human hands, and that is the image of our Lord on the napkin. Most importantly, of course, is the Dormition of the Mother of God. We call that Dormition in the Eastern Churches. In the Western Church, they call it the Assumption. In other words, this is the feast day, the biggest, most important feast day of the Mother of God, which is celebrated on the 15th of August in both the Eastern and Western lungs of the Church. And this very significant feast day is so because we celebrate the fact of the Mother of God going into heaven, body and soul. Now, the question is, did she die first and then go into heaven? Or was she assumed body and soul immediately together into heaven? Believe it or not, church doctrine allows us to interpret it both ways. But the most important thing is that her body and her soul, whether it's separated for a time or however it happened, the fact is her body and soul did enter into heaven intact. In other words, when the apostles came to her tomb, which is part of the story that we'll talk about today, when they came to her tomb when she died, then they buried her or brought her body to the tomb. They returned to see it again. In other words, they did so because St. Thomas, as usual, was late, and he came to see it. But it is when he came that once again God used his lateness, his tardiness, <laughs> to reveal something. It was at that point that the apostles opened the tomb and saw that her body was gone. All that was left was the wrapping. So we have the evidence then that the mother of God entered into heaven body and soul. How exactly that happened, the church does not say. But the fact that it happened is very significant for us because it shows how we were first created to be and also shows our destiny. See, the mother of God is the new Eve. So whatever happened to her is a reflection of how Eve 
really was meant to be at the beginning, but also how all of us, as the descendants of Eve, the children of Eve, of Adam and Eve, will eventually be in the end of time and forever, especially, of course, if we are saved, if we make it to heaven. And that being this, our bodies and souls will once again be reunited, but in a glorious state in heaven. Now, the mother of God, because she was without sin, had an anticipation of that. In other words, she did not have to undergo the exact same form of death as the rest of us, because the rest of us, of course, are marked by sin in some way. Of course, we inherit original sin, but baptism, of course, brings us beyond it, but yet the effects are still there. The effects being that our bodies and souls separate at death. Now, for the mother of God, she entered into heaven. She anticipated what will happen to us, though, in the end of time. In other words, we'll have to wait. Our bodies will be put in the ground, of course, when they die. Our souls will go on to the next life, but they will await the reunification of our bodies. So our bodies and our souls will be reunited once again, but in a glorified state. So that's the great destiny. It's a great thing that God has in store for us. And this was revealed, proven, anticipated by Jesus Christ, by his own death and resurrection, and also anticipated and foreshadowed at his transfiguration on Mount Tabor. But it was also seen in the mother of God. In other words, she achieved and experienced what all of us hope to, but will have to wait for. She experienced it because She was preserved from sin in the way that we have inherited or experienced sin. So both East and West celebrate this assumption or dormition of the Mother of God. This feast is actually very ancient. In fact, the observance of the Mother of God is very ancient in the church, especially in the Eastern church. It goes all the way back to the 4th century. And then later on in the 5th century, when the doctrine of the Theotokos came out after the Council of Ephesus, the church began to look at and observe the mother of God in a special way, kind of gave her her own date. But around the 6th century, they built a church over the place where she was buried originally in Gethsemane. And from then on, it began to be a celebration, not just of the mother of God in a sort of a generic sense as it was to that point, but specifically her dormition. In other words, her death, her, her the type of death she endured, that passing into the next life, with body and soul being reunited. In other words, her body did not have to lay in the ground and decay. This is what happened when the apostles came upon her grave and saw that her body was gone. Not only did they see it was gone, but the story goes that the grave was filled with this fragrance. As a result of that, in the Byzantine church, we have a tradition of bringing flowers to the church to be blessed. Not only flowers, but also herbs, medicinal herbs. They're brought to the church and they're blessed and they're taken home as reminders as sort of like sacramentals. See, in the Eastern churches, and the Western church as well, but in particular the Eastern church, we're very sacramental-oriented. In other words, we take things, we take stuff from the world, from the earth, from outside. We bring it into the church, we kind of reunite it with the liturgy itself, and then we take those things home. In a sense, we're taking the church, or part of the church, or our experience of liturgy, and the realities that we're celebrating in liturgy, such as the Mother of God, we're taking those realities and kind of stretching them into our home, and we're making them present in our home so that our day-to-day life becomes tinged and touched with the reality that we celebrate in church. The word for this is called domestic church, and the way we do that is through these sacramentals. So a beautiful custom we have is we bring in flowers and herbs into the church on the Feast of the Dormition, The priest blesses those, and we take them home. Some people even dry them out, and they'll put them in their Bibles, for instance, as a uh, almost like a Bible marker, as a bookmarker, or or just as a memento. They'll put it maybe in the cover of their Bible or in their prayer book, or just keep them around as long as possible in their homes. These are ways in which, through the liturgy, we are able to touch 
God and touch the mother of God and touch heaven. And that's the beautiful thing about our faith, both East and West. It's a sacramentally based faith. It's a very incarnational faith where what is physical puts us in touch with what is spiritual. So as I mentioned, the feast of the mother of God, all the feast days of the mother of God, in particular, once it developed into the feast of the Dormition mother of God, developed in the East, started in the East, and eventually spread to the West. In fact, much, much later, in recent times, November 1st, 1950, Pope Pius XII solemnly proclaimed the centuries-long belief that the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having pleaded the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. And this solemn proclamation, Dogma of Mary's Assumption into Heaven, fittingly describes this crowning event in the life of the Most Holy Mother of God, whose liturgical veneration, as I mentioned, did originate in the East. This Dormition, or the Assumption of Mother of God, is, of course, a historical event and a dogma of the Church. But we also have in the Church different sources that come down to us through tradition that fill in some other details of the events of the life of the person we're talking about. I'm going to read a few passages from a great book. It's a great, actually, it's a set of books. It's called The Prologue from Oakred. And I've mentioned this book to you before, and I highly recommend you get it. If you want to really walk through the liturgical life of the Eastern churches day by day. Because this book has beautiful meditations on the particular feast or saint of that day. And for today's feast, or this week, actually the feast this week of the Domitian Mother of God, it says this, The Lord who on Sinai gave the commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, showed by his own example how one must reverence one's parents. Hanging in agony on the cross, he remembered his mother, and indicating the apostle John said to her, Woman, behold thy son, and to John, behold thy mother. And... With his concern for his mother, he breathed his last. John had a home on Zion in Jerusalem where he settled the mother of God and left her to pass her remaining days on earth. By her prayers, her kind advice, her meekness and patience, she was of immense help to her son's apostles. She spent virtually the rest of her life in Jerusalem, often going around places that reminded her of the great events and the great works associated with them and performed by her son. She especially visited Golgotha, Bethlehem, and the Mount of Olives. Of her journeys farther afield, her visit to St. Ignatius, the God-bearer, is recorded, as are those to St. Lazarus, the four days dead, Bishop of Cyprus, to the Holy Mountain, to which she gave her blessing and her stay in Ephesus with John during a fierce persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. Now in old age, the Mother of God often prayed to her Lord and God in the Mount of Olives on the spot from which he ascended to take her from this world. One day, the Archangel Gabriel appeared to her and revealed that she would enter into rest in three days, and the angel gave her a palm branch to be carried in her funeral procession. She returned home with great joy and with heartfelt hope that she would see Christ's apostles once more in this life. The Lord fulfilled her desire, and all the apostles, brought by angels and clouds, gathered together at John's house on Zion. It was with great joy that she saw the holy apostles, and she encouraged, advised, and upheld them, then peacefully gave her soul into God's hands without the slightest physical pain or struggle. The apostles took the coffin containing her body, from which an aromatic fragrance arose, and accompanied by many Christians, took it to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the grave of Saints Joachim and Anna. By God's providence, they were hidden from the wicked Jews by a cloud. A Jewish priest, Anthony, touched the coffin with his hand, intending to overturn it, but at that moment an angel of God cut off both his hands. He cried out with the pain, begging the apostles' help, and was healed in confessing his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was left to the apostle Thomas, who was delayed, again by God's providence, to reveal a new and glorious mystery about the Mother of God. He arrived on the third day and desired to embrace the body of the Holy and Most Pure Mother. When the apostles opened her grave, he found only the winding sheet. The body was not in the grave. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. 
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You're listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you... You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East on this week of translations. Only this time it's not translations of languages and words, rather it's translations of people, relics, and cloths. Here at Light of the East, we truly appreciate all of you listening to us, and we particularly appreciate it whenever you contact us. So I want to say hello, before we go any further today in the program, I want to say hello to Abby from Seattle, Washington, and also once again to Catherine from Fremont, California, and as always, to some of our really loyal listeners such as Sonia and also Jack Lou. Once again, thank you and God bless you for contacting us, and above all, for listening. We're talking specifically about the translation, so to speak, of the Mother of God, body and soul, into heaven, called the Dormition in the Eastern Churches and the Assumption in the Western Churches. Now, I read an account from the prologue from Okrid, and in that account, there were a couple of things that were mentioned that are significant when it comes to the icon of the Dormition. One of those is that the story is that the apostles were brought miraculously to the grave of the Mother of God by means of a cloud and of smoke. And oftentimes you'll see in the icon of the Dormition, you'll see in the upper half of the icon, literally you will see the the apostles painted there in clouds. That's why that's there. The other thing oftentimes you'll see, you will see this individual, you'll often see a figure of a man standing at the bier of the Mother of God as she's laying there in her Dormition, and his hands are outstretched, but his hands are cut off. Well, that's a reference that you just heard me read before the break from the Okrid, prologue of Okrid, about the Jewish man who tried to touch the coffin to upset it. In other words, at that time, of course, we still had tension between the believers and non-believers of the followers of Christ, other Jewish people. So that's why those images are in the icon. Oftentimes people ask me, why is that figure there with his hands cut off? Well, that's the reason. 
And also in the icon, you'll see figures of bishops and other apostles and other saints and people from the time after the Dormition Mother God. This shows that the whole church, both at the time of the Virgin Mary and the time of Christ till today, gathers around this symbol, this presence, this person of the Mother of God. She is the, the truly the symbol of the church. And the whole church celebrates since time immemorial celebrates this great feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God, the falling asleep or the Assumption of the Mother of God. And as always, we have to refer to the liturgical texts, which always express so beautifully and deeply and precisely what it is we believe. Especially in the Eastern churches, it's the characteristic of liturgy that we basically proclaim what we believe. In other words, our chant and our worship is kind of like theological exposés, almost like going on a kind of a contemplative retreat of a particular event or life of the person. And for the Dormition of the Mother of God, or her Assumption, we sing certain texts like this. She is higher than the heavens, more glorious than the cherubim, and more honorable than all creation. Her outstanding purity became the dwelling place of the eternal divinity. Today she places her all-pure soul into the hands of her Son. With her the universe is filled with joy, and the grace of salvation is given to us. Now, there's another reference to the icon in that liturgical text I just read. It's the part that says, Today she places her all-pure soul into the hands of her son. On the icon, you'll see, and oftentimes I'm asked this question, when people look at the icon of the Dormition, in the center of it, Jesus is standing over the Mother of God, again, over the bier, and he's holding what looks to be a baby or a child in his arms, and it's wrapped in white swaddling clothes. Well, that child is symbolic of the pure, childlike, you know, innocent soul, the Virgin Mary, that he is receiving now into his arms, and eventually, of course, her body as well. So, in the liturgical text, there is a reference to the icon. So, you see how integrated liturgy can be in the church, especially in the East, where what we sing and say is also seen in the iconography and the architecture, in the gesture and rhythm and flow of worship itself. Another liturgical text is this, The most pure spouse, the mother of the one in whom the Father was well pleased, she whom God had chosen to become the dwelling place of his natures that had been united without confusion, today delivers her most pure soul to her divine creator. The angels welcome her in a divine manner, and the mother of life is now transferred to life. She is a lamp of the inaccessible brightness the hope of our souls, and the salvation of believers. Many wonderful texts that explain poetically and theologically the meaning of this feast. This feast has a one-day pre-festive, which means one day before we prepare for it. We already begin to sing these chants, these texts. But it also has an eight-day post-festive, where for eight days we celebrate this feast, where we repeat the liturgical text and all the divine office for the day that have to do with this great feast of the Dormition, or the falling asleep on the Mother of God, or in other words, the Assumption. Now, two weeks prior to this, we enter into a fasting period. Now, it's kind of interesting, because in the Eastern churches, we have four, basically four Lents, so to speak. <laughs> in other words, we have four major penitential seasons. We have some minor ones, too, but the four major ones include this period prior to the Dormition, or the Assumption. We prepare in the Eastern churches for great feast days by cleaning house spiritually. So we pray and we fast. Then we feast and celebrate on the feast day itself and also on the post-festive. Now, what's interesting about this one 
is that this feast is two weeks before the Assumption or the, or the Dormition, starting on August 1st, and it involves abstaining from meat and dairy products throughout those 14 days, and of course, increased prayer, and above all, going to confession. But amidst that time, between August 1st and August 14th, there is a glorious feast with its own post-festive of the Transfiguration of our Lord on Mount Tabor. So now we have kind of a problem in a sense, because we're supposed to be fasting, yet we can't fast, we're not supposed to fast, during a feast day. And that feast day, especially of the Lord, has a post-festive. So what do we do? Well, we still observe it, and in fact, precisely for this reason, the fact that you have a major Christ feast day, Christ event, amidst the Feast of Dormition, we have what's called in the Eastern churches, especially the Ruthenian Byzantine Catholic Church, we call this feast the Spasovka. Spasovka, which means the Savior's Feast. Isn't that interesting? It's a feast leading up to the Mother of God, but it's actually called the Savior's Feast because right in the midst of that preparation, that penitential preparation for the Mother of God, we have a major and very popular feast in the Byzantine Church of the Transfiguration of our Lord on Mount Tabor. Now, historically, the fast of their mission can be traced to the 9th century but it was officially introduced into the Byzantine discipline by the Synod of Constantinople in 1166 AD. So, Spasovka, the Savior's fast, preparing us for the Feast of the Dormition, or the Assumption of the Mother of God. And as I mentioned, this is a whole week of translations. So the other translation that's happening this week, one of the other ones, is the translation of the icon of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is also called the icon not made with human hands. Now, this is where we get the term Veronica's Veil. And it's actually kind of play in languages. Talk about translation. Now we're back to actual language translation, where it means vero icon. See how it works? Veronica, vero icon. In other words, true image. And it became personified in terms of a woman who supposedly went up to Jesus while he was walking on his route with the cross and wiped his face, and then there was the image on there. Well, there's actually another twist to that, original twist to that story, coming from the East. And again, I'm going to refer to the prologue of Okrid for that source. In the time that the Lord was preaching the gospel and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people, there was in the city of Edessa on the banks of the Euphrates a certain prince, Avgar, who was riddled with leprosy. He heard of Christ, the healer of every pain and sickness, and sent a portrait painter, Ananias, to Palestine with a letter to Christ in which he begged the Lord to come to Edessa and heal him of his leprosy. In the event the Lord was not able to come, the prince commanded Ananias to paint his likeness and bring it, believing that the portrait would heal him. The Lord replied that he could not come, as the time of his passion was at hand, and he took a napkin and wiped his face, leaving a perfect reproduction of his most pure face on the napkin. The Lord gave this napkin to Ananias with a message to say that the prince would be healed by it, but not entirely. And he would therefore send him later an envoy who would rid him of the remaining part of the disease. Receiving the napkin, Avgar kissed it, and the leprosy fell from his body, with just a little remaining on his face. Later, though, the apostle Thaddeus, preaching the gospel, came to Avgar, healed him secretly, and baptized him. Then the prince smashed the idols and stood at the city's gateway and placed the napkin with the face of Christ above the entrance, stuck onto wood, surrounded with a gold frame and ornamented with pearls. Now, it's interesting because... In Byzantine churches that are painted correctly with iconography, in fact, you could see that at my Church of Annunciation in Homer Glen, Illinois, over the entrance to the sanctuary, above the icon screen, over the entrance of the sanctuary, just as over the entrance to the, to the, gate, the gateway to the city in the story, is to be painted this image of Christ 
on the napkin. In other words, the image not made with human hands. This is really how we refer to it in the Eastern churches. We don't refer to it as Veronica's veil. It tends to be more of a Western expression. In the East, we refer to it as the image not made with human hands. And indeed, we put that image over the heavenly gates of the sanctuary in the church, just as Avgar put it over the gates of his city. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Leah on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610. Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>